G'day and welcome to Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann, and today I'm really excited to have Jay Sidhu from Vision Survey Consulting back to have a chat to me on how to find a subdividable property that stacks up. And unlike, I guess, uh, other times when I've seen this covered by various other people, I wanted to get into the specifics and the inside view as to how someone goes about doing this successfully in Perth. So we really pull it apart. We dance around all over the place a bit, but I think we're putting together a real end-to-end picture of the things that you need to consider and how you should go about doing it. So let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth Property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. G'day, Jay. Thanks for joining me, mate. I know you're extremely busy, just as I, so a rarity that we can make our schedules align. So thanks for jumping on. Always always a pleasure talking, Jared. You know, try to make some time for people that need the NL listeners out there, so you know, got to make some time. Well, we did have a good response to our first part one and part two. If you haven't checked those out, go back and see our last interviews with Jay. But today I wanted to go a little deeper because often when people are talking about subdividing or developing a property, they brush over things in big strokes, but they leave out a lot of the step-by-steps and the detail. And that's where investors can often step in the in a trap, if you will, and really cost themselves a lot of money or make assumptions that simply aren't true or that because the agent has told them this or told them that. Of course, they shouldn't be relying on anything that the agent says, and I'm an agent, so but I try to at least tell people the facts so that they can make decisions, but not every agent also knows what they're talking about. So how are you finding things at work at the moment? Things are going well, mate. Things are going well. The uh, activity is definitely certainly still out there. The general sentiment of things is that uh, things are, you know, for us and anyway, everyone's either already started their projects due to all the stimulus stuff that was going on before. The builders are definitely all out there getting slabs down. So you can see that one part of our business is quite busy getting out all the marks required for that. And on the other side, just the developers out there who are looking at apartment developments is interesting that apartment developments all coming back to my desk and getting out the preliminary strata plans and, you know, they're all um, getting their pre-sales done. So yeah, pretty Pretty interesting times ahead. And mums and dads are still pulling the trigger on subdivisions, even this is after the stimulus. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's good. I guess uh, something that stacks up is exactly. still possible to move forward and there'll be buyers for. But uh, I'd imagine some of the outer areas where they probably received six months of buyers in two months, they might be quiet for a while. So let's let's start at the very beginning. Let's assume we're... A property investor, we might not know too much. Thinking about doing our first subdivision, where do you kind of begin your search for a property? And I can add some thoughts to this, but where would you begin if you were this person? Well, we get queries from two different kinds of sort of pool there, one being the person going out there to look for their next investment property and one being the person who lives in the current property that they're looking at investing some money into making better. 
I would say that just do your research based on looking through the listings out there. And then on top of that, just finding out a feel of the area for people like you yourself, you would know what the feel of the area is, what the general sentiment is. And ultimately, you're looking at how much you're going to spend on these developments because that's where you want to work backwards and see whether you can make any money from it, right? And, and on top of that, your tax implications and the likes, they will all come into play. So again, I think I mentioned in our first interview that you need that team behind you because that team's not just going to be myself and you, Jared, it's going to be a lot of other consultants that are consulting you on this same thing as well, but just getting that information from every part that's required. So yeah, I, I always like to start with the strategy and what you're hoping to do, you begin with the end in mind. And if you're looking for a, it's good to get a, if you want to do a subdivision or development, you, you need to get a feel for what sort of size project. And it's always good to start with your budget and speak to your finance broker, as you mentioned, bring your other team members in from the very beginning and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking of do, doing. What sort of purchase price can I allow? Am I going to have enough money to actually fund this thing all the way forward if you want to take it forward? Or your strategy might be buy something now that stacks up and that can be subdivided and then revisit actually taking the project through in 6, 12, 18 months as the market continues to improve and you, we, we get a little bit more confidence around using builders and their ability to deliver on their timeframes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I always like to start with that money piece because people can get carried away looking at all kinds of things. And, and if you can't actually fund it, then you either need to go and get a partner or get your mum and dad or get someone to guarantor or you need to save up some more money and have that goal in sight. So even if your broker says, hey, you're going to need, you can only borrow 450K and you're thinking you need 600K to get into a reasonable area, just just per se, giving some numbers. And then if you're doing a, a basic subdivision, you might need 30 to 50,000 minimum for a duplex. And if you're going to build on the rear, you're probably going to need that or double to fund the deposit and put it all together. But I'm just mm. just starting with that end in mind. You can you start with your budget, you discuss your strategy with the people around you, you see what's kind of going to be feasible for you to fund. And then if there's gaps, you can chat with potentially a friend or a family member or Exactly. I would also be looking at everyone uh, is excited about doing stuff when the market is going gangbusters like it is now, but you need to look at who you might be partnering with and who you're doing something with as well. And is that going to be sustainable? And think about the downside of if you've got a longer project or you need to hold the property, You know, do you want to be holding it with this person too? Yeah, of course. I think in the first one, we all, you mentioned yourself, you were going through um, purchasing a property of your own. And sometimes people are doing that with, you know, uh, either a client or and his partner going out there to purchase a place to live in, but also the fact of potentially wanting to subdivide in the future. But because they're going to want to live in it, and, you know, you mentioned this because it was an emotional purchase, you were also going in a little bit, <laughs> you, you tend to pay a little bit more. And, and you just want the property. So that part there sometimes doesn't really work so well. And I've been to a couple of auctions with uh, my clients for subdivision properties to try and acquire sites for subdivision. 
And I've seen sites go prices that I wouldn't even want to touch because mm-hmm. I don't think I can get that that return back. Exactly. So I guess you've yeah. got to decide when there is that personal side involved, what comes first? Is this a, a personal choice or is this an investment? And if you want a personal choice that still step still makes sense to you, then yeah. Yeah. So why I bring that up is because you said the whole end goal thing. What is the end goal? Is is the is the personal home just a stepping stone and then actually ultimately it is an end goal of subdividing? Then you know you gotta put that in mind. Yeah. yeah have exactly. that in the forefront. Prioritize the subdivision if that's your if that's your end goal. That's it. So let's say you've got a bit of a budget, you can come and chat with me about potential suburbs to buy in and I like to look at long-term history but I also if that's if I'm holding a property longer term if I'm keep if I'm going to turn the property over and and plan to sell I still like to look more at the shorter term of how many other projects are coming forward in this market and what level of competition and supply we're going to have and I also like to look at where is the suburb at in its stage like is it starting to get too hot in there or is it just starting to turn the corner as some of the outer suburbs are and I guess get a feel for are you going to have lots of other people to compete with in there too because uh, at the moment as you mentioned can be very hard to secure a a property that and pay an okay amount for it isn't it yeah definitely definitely uh it's just it's the case Matt. I'm, I'm seeing it all the time what I also find is, you know, how finding the area, a lot of people get comfortable with the area that they're in and yeah. they know their area really well. And it sometimes works. Sometimes yeah, works for it them. It does because, sometimes work. If yeah. They can know their numbers, know the nuances and know their rent prices and uh, actually be confident in what they're doing, then that could be a good stepping stone to a successful project. And the key there is knowing what they're doing because, you know, you could know the market really well, but if you don't know what you need to do in that particular suburb to get your titles, that's what's going to catch you out. And I see that all the time as well. And I think we discussed previously just, you know, soil types and stuff add into cost of development. So if you want to check that out again, listen to Jared's podcast once again, just to refresh your memory. But uh, things like that are some things that you need to know. And I like to... Once I get my one or two suburbs, I like to register alerts and reach out and touch base with all the local agents. I actually just recorded an episode on how to find and secure properties in a hot market. So that one's going to be really helpful towards this. And uh, go back and listen to that one if you if you haven't checked it out yet. Employee, and you really have to get a system around looking or you'd really need to get a buyer's agent in my opinion so you have to treat this seriously and diligently in this market or you're just gonna be left behind and other people that are more prepared to act and have got all their ducks in a row are going to beat you to the punch on things so that means reaching out diligently to agents keeping in regular contact with them letting them know your criteria and you know registering all your alerts on websites and you might want to also take some off-market approaches to flyer drops and these kind of things you need every iron in the fire at the moment to to find something and you know let's say we're starting to look at properties specifically and this is where your expertise comes in 
how do we know if something, or how do we know the coding for a property? Where do we even start with? with? Okay, so the easiest way is, the easiest way what I do would be just to Google your local government, just type in, let's say if it's Canning, right? Just type in Canning and then go Intramaps. Just see whether they have an Intramaps system, okay? If they don't, then you've got to go through the town planning scheme, find up an old school map and then try and figure out where the area is, look at the color and look at the zoning. But the easiest option is the online mapping system. Type in your address in the online mapping system. Make sure that you're on the latest town planning scheme. So sometimes they, they show also the older town planning schemes in there. Make sure you're on the latest town planning schemes and it will then let you know what the zoning of your property is, okay? And so that usually, from all the intramaps that I use, the town's planning schemes are usually selectable as layers on the left and they often default to just the general layer or an aerial layer and so you have to select town town planning scheme and make sure that you're choosing the current one as Jay said and then usually on the right is where the coding pops up and make sure that you when you look at it some people don't notice that there can be some split codings there and they just say oh it's r20 slash 40 r40 they just look at r40 and they're like oh yeah it's r40 that's mistake probably number one isn't it <laughs> Yeah, well, you've got to remember that, and I don't know whether, I can't recall if I mentioned this in the first interview or not, Jared, but the high split density coding just means that if it's 20 slash 40, R20 is the base coding and R40 is the higher density should you meet certain requirements. So you always got to ask yourself, what does the local government want in return for the higher density? There's always a condition. There's a catch. Even though the, yeah, there's always a catch. Even though if the condition is as easy as connecting to deep sewerage, you still got to check whether or not you already have deep sewerage in place and if you still need to do it. You still got to check it, okay? So don't just assume because that's uh, that's, that's not good. <laughs> and it does vary hugely, doesn't it? Because, I mean, I was in, I sold a property in Swanview the other day. A local agent appraised the property for 330 to 350 I found out that it was actually subdividable and it um, had a R20 slash R30 split coding. Went to the local councils. I was, I was expecting lots of conditions to be attached. There wasn't any conditions and to get the R30, the higher coding, and I was pleasantly surprised in that case. But lucky for my seller, that meant that I could get an extra 50-odd thousand, I thought, above what the other agent had said. I packaged it up in selling. And these are the types of properties that if you can find a local agent that doesn't understand this, if that agent had got the listing, he would have put it on at the 330 to 350. But in my case, we went on at 380 to 420 and I ended up selling it at 420. So Perfect. great for the seller. Uh, and that, that potential was hidden and unknown there. And it was relatively straightforward because there wasn't any special requirements to achieve to develop at the higher coding. But let's say Perfect. the local agent had listed it 330 to 350. You could have even come in and bought it at 350. The seller would have thought they'd gotten a massive price. The agent would have thought he'd outdone himself, but then there could have been this hidden potential. And the crazy thing, Jay, is that the next door neighbour had sold three months before without selling that potential. So these things do exist out there. And I know I rattled through an example there, but I just really wanted to put some meat on on how important the coatings are and sometimes the potentials are not known by the agents and don't assume 
This is the one in Chiamandari or City of Swan? Uh, City of Swan. City of Swan, okay. And it had more than 1,100 square meters, oh, sorry, 1,300 square meters in your property? No. No. So that means that no matter what you do, you can only do two lots only rather than more. Yeah. So that's the other thing to make sure you think about as well because um, sometimes people go, okay, well, I can get the high density part and create this extra lot, but then there is a cap actually to the number of you, uh, lots that you can have. And this just goes to show as well, there's, there's always... Trouble in the details, isn't there? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Let's say we're browsing online as well. Does every ad have the coding written in the advert? And is the agents always right? <laughs> okay. So this one here, what I find, I'm sorry, Jared, but you're, you're an agent, obviously. But the agents sometimes put in the coding from RP Data. Now, the coding from RP Data, what I find is not always up to date. Because I've seen many that aren't the case. I find it's abysmally not up to date when I'm appraising. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to use a better word of term, you know. So, yes. <laughs> And look, it's not RP Data's fault either. They are sucking in data from everywhere. Exactly. Exactly. Still the, you need to check it with the actual source being the council, don't you? Yeah. So check the council. Check online yourself. Yes, it says a certain zoning, but it doesn't take a long time just for you to confirm that zoning. And that's the first thing I sort of ask when I'm talking to them. I'm like, have you checked the zoning yet? Even though I kind of know what the zoning is in a particular area at a particular time, someone gives me a street name, I'm just going to know what the zoning is. But I'm still not going to say anything until I still key it in just to make sure. Yeah, I always go back to it as well. 100%. 100%. I just, you just got to find out that and it's really important. Take your time, find it out. So when you're searching on realestate.com as well, like you can't just search for properties that mention development potential or subdivision or a specific R code. And I know some people have filters that they put on things to only find those properties that mention those keywords, but then you're missing all the properties that are unknown or not correctly specified exactly well you know good good them let them filter through the ones that aren't coming through so that you actually get that chance to look at the ones that people are not getting sent and i don't know how you've approached it personally but when i've been looking for a site that has a certain coding what i do as well as with the intro maps you just mentioned i usually print out the map maps and i also make a, a spreadsheeted list of all the street names that fall within the higher coding areas. And that mm-hmm. at least can be a guide. And I like keeping it on my desk or on my wall besides my computer. A, a property comes up and you get an alert or someone mentions it, then you can go and and just see as a quick, you know, back of envelope, is this likely to be? Of course, go and check actual intramaps yourself as well. But This can help you plan out if you're doing a letter drop as well. You can be like, okay, I'm going to drop to this area. If you're chatting with an agent, I I would not tell them that you're looking for a developable property. I would tell them that you're looking for a property within this precinct and specify the precinct. So then you're not divulging your true intention for what you're searching for. Mm -hmm. Just some little practical tips as to how I make things easier. Ideas like that help people find, it might spark a light bulb for them. So it works. So how do you kind of use the coding then to see what can be done? Okay. So, and this is a, might be a little bit of change coming through soon. I think, did you speak to, in regards to small, 
more medium density coatings. We spoke to Aaron about medium density, but I know they're also working on other changes to the R code, so we'll get him back in due course to chat about that. Exactly. So, but the, but the basics still remain the same. You've still got to look at the average and the minimum lot sizes for the blocks. And but with the medium density coding stuff, it is a seriously entertained document at the moment. So if you're doing medium density stuff, do refer back to that. I believe that comments close on the 16th of April. So you know, there'll be some edits or anything made from there. But the, in essence, all, what you're doing is you're looking at the property itself, find out the zoning, look at the average lot size. And from the average, it tells you how many lots you can yield from there. And that's not it. You then got to look at the minimum lot size to make sure that you can even fit blocks that you're trying to create. Okay. And where do we find this coding or where do we find this average and minimum? I'm going right back to basics here. Yeah. So the R codes, so state planning policy 7.3, you would be looking at table, I believe it's it used to be table one. So but yeah. Yep. I have it printed out right now. You can't see, but yep, right here next to me, <laughs> bottom drawer. And so you should. I've uh, been complacent of it. It's just in my head, but uh, I should probably print it out and just put it back on the wall again. But within that table itself, it would give you certain numbers in there with average and minimum lot sizes, plus what the zoning is. And also sometimes it's got battle axe requirements as well. With the new medium density coding, I believe there's an updated table as well in there. So do have a look at that as well. So where it says an average, you were just starting to explain that for the average you need, let's say we've got a 700 square metre block and our coatings are 30. Take us through how to approach what may or may not can, can be done with that. So you take the 700 square metres, you divide it by the average of the R30, okay? So, and that itself will give you the yield, all right? And with that yield, so it will be two. And then with that yield, then you want to try and design. Because the average is 300, so. The average yep. 300, yep. So then you then want to design the blocks. Then you want to go, okay, do I get to go side by side or do I do front and back subdivision? Then you look at the column that says minimum frontage. If there is a minimum frontage, if there's not a minimum frontage, okay. There's no minimum frontage on the R30, so that's good. No. Yep. So then you just go, okay, well, there's no minimum frontage, but you can't just create a... It has to be practical too. <laughs> four or five skirt. Yeah, it has to be practical. It needs to be able to work. And sometimes you might go, or oh, Jared, you might go, look, the house is really good. I want to sell this house. I can sell this house for a really good price. So try and keep the house. So then you've got to look at whether you can meet battle axe requirements for this. Okay. Um, that- and there's often a lot of value in the, the house as well too. So you'd really need the house to be pretty dilapidated or for you to be picking the property up at an amazing price for you to have enough, for there not to be enough value in the house. Or if you've got a massive block and you're creating more than two or three lots, if you're creating four or five and the house must go, then it's going to make it easier to be able to put the bulldozer through it. Very true, very true. You've got to remember that uh, keeping a house in a subdivision is the subdivision itself is more expensive than a full demo subdivision because yep. at more often than not, you're going to have to upgrade something on that house. Um, you're going to have to create car parking. You're going to have to create, sometimes it might be, sometimes you've got to do stormwater drainage connections if the, if the waters are free. If the, yeah, I'm saying a storeroom. Yeah. Yeah, storeroom. So, I mean, storeroom is a small cost, 
but sometimes you have to fire rate. You got to you got to fire rate the building. Sometimes if your if your boundary is really really close to the building, so you got to sometimes brick up the windows, brick up doors. You know, it all depends on the design itself. So um, just um, and I guess people also don't think about what is having that front house do to the value of whatever's behind it. I had a call yeah. by one of our clients on the weekend looking at some land and the first question I said to them was, what's the front house like? Because you're not going to be able to go and fix that up and renovate it after you've bought the land and, and mm. they hope that the house will be better and they're like, oh, Jared, it's actually horrible. I think it, the tenants of running amok and I was like, I think it might be a hot market now and you might want to get in and really into this area but after you've bought it and things cool down, are you going to want to live behind that? And the answer was no. And I was like, well, step away, step away. <laughs> I know you're desperate. Hey. I know you've missed out on some land but already, yeah. but, you know, don't compromise on the, on the front house, please. No. Sometimes you just got to step away. You got to make that feasible decision, mate. You know, exactly. got to do it right. Before I forget as well, we should probably also touch on bushfire yes. rating. So just make sure you check when you are looking at your property. And I digress a little bit from Marcos, but I just didn't want to forget this. Um, just check whether or not your property is in a bushfire zone. And just to make sure that um, if it is even touched by that map, just by a teeny tiny bit. So how, where does someone go to check that, Jay? You'll have to go to the DFES map, so DFES, uh, Department of Fire Emergency Services, and you just type in DFES maps, and then you type in your address. And um, it will show you your particular property and whether or not it's in the zone. Now, if it is in the zone, then you will have to then do a bell assessment. Okay, now that will be part of the subdivision. So if it's in the zone, WAPC will not actually accept your application without that. So it's not necessarily a deal breaker, but it's going to require further investigation, isn't it? And it could potentially add to the cost of what you're developing so that it's going to withstand the potential fires that could occur in that area. Exactly. Just a little bit of extra, extra cost in construction itself. So without bail rating, so your cost of construction will be a little bit cheaper and it just adds a little bit as the rating goes up. But if it's flame zone, then you've got a problem because you would not... WAPC would not want to approve a subdivision like that. So you will have to go okay. through a more strenuous journey to try and get that through or at least do a bushfire management plan to mitigate that fire risk. Okay? Yeah. So let's let's get back to you know, the minimum and the average and we're looking at this 700 square metre block. When you mention that minimum, how do we use that in relation to the front house to, to know if it might be retainable? Like, how do we? Well, you're going to have to draw you know, it up. You're going to have to see whether or not you can draw a lot in the front with the house, with some setbacks to the new boundaries and see whether you can gain that, that minimum lot size. Okay. And then you've got to do the same for the rear. And you also get to see whether you've got enough room on your driveway for a driveway to be drawn. The, the basic answer to that is... A surveyor will need to help you draw up that subdivision. Yeah. And more often than not, if you're keeping a house, you're going to have to do the boundary survey and feature survey because if you've got something less than four meters, if you're measuring up the tape, then that's not really a straightforward subdivision anymore. We're going to have to try and go down below four meters and try and see whether or not we can do a subdivision. Three meters has to be totally nothing inside that three meters at all. 
Okay. okay. So you're talking yeah. about the side access to the rear here, aren't you? It's, it's, the, it's the driveway to the back. Yeah. yeah. And you've got to look up at the eaves. You've got to look at is there openings onto that and that will affect the setback that you can have. And so you're basically saying if it's not if it's not a clear cut four metres to nothing, then further investigation is needed, isn't it? Yeah, because you, you might need to either put an easement in place, either bring in the driveway smaller to clear those and clear those um, structures that are inside the four metres, or, or you've got to try and cut it all back and do the works. And how do we use this minimum lot areas for a rear battle axe? How do we use that figure in the table? For R30 here, it says 410. How do we kind of apply that when we're looking at the property? So battle axe lot, it means that you have to own the driveway, okay? There's no common property. If there's common property, it just means it's just a block at the back. Now, to do that, you've got to make sure that you've got that 410 as part inclusive of the driveway. But the other part to look at is that 80% of that lot area needs to be at the rear as the effective lot area, okay? And then you can then meet the requirements for a battle axe. And so what does that really mean in terms of how the plan's created and what's the benefits of, I guess, of creating a battle axe lot as opposed to a shared driveway scenario? Well, a battle axe block, you just answered it. Um, you're basically not sharing that, that yep. driveway. It's just going to be your driveway. But sometimes in a busy street, even though you can, you might be encouraged to look at getting it as common property just so that there's not a plethora of, of crossovers everywhere and just yep. a concrete-ridden uh, street. <laughs> And if and and also working the other way, if you do have common property, you will be asked to use that common property as common access for both. And okay. sometimes what I'm seeing is even if the front already has a separate access, or if there's enough room, or it's a street without that many crossovers, they just don't want to create that residence and and make it have, a thing. And yeah, two crossovers where one can otherwise perhaps work. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I tell my clients this, but I actually agree with that. I don't want a street filled with crossovers, and I don't want Concrete to be the cause of, <laughs> I don't want to be the cause of doing that for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, what else is there? Anything else to look for in order for the house to be retainable, or do you think we've covered everything there? Uh, so, the survey would um, you would want to try and look at survey needs to see where the eaves are, where the windows are, where the doors are. You know, those are important things. Um, don't just draw a square and the eaves is a square. You want to tell your surveyor that you're retaining the house so that more information is is actually recorded. Otherwise, yeah. you're just paying for extra site visits later on. But when when we discuss and start when you're acquiring a property, these are things that, um, let's say, if you came to myself, I would be telling you what I want to get in that first survey to make sure that I'm able to make a decision, okay? So I guess buyers can probably make their offer subject to satisfaction with a survey potentially or can they use an aerial and or other measurements to get some level of confidence because it is hard to pull the trigger and they can't say, oh, let me get my surveyor in first before we make an offer. I'm just grounding yeah. it in some of the practicals here. In the slower market, you could wait a week, you could investigate some of these things more before potentially offering, but at the moment you've got to have your ducks in a row. Yeah, look, an aerial view itself is sufficient for myself when I'm when I'm looking at, at making a decision on the property and yeah. for clients as well. But if it's something that I'm measuring through aerial and it's showing me three meters, now that's of concern to me. If I'm yeah. measuring five meters for an access way, 
then you know yeah. it's not really that much of a concern. Then the more, person can confirm uh, on site with measurements and inspection as well, and never just trust the aerial. But I know the fence line can be. So that fence line thing is a is a big thing for myself, and I try and I try and um, remind people as much as I can that fencing, more often than not. Um, especially in older areas, isn't always in the boundary. So just check that. I guess it's always about margins of error, isn't it? Because if you've got six metres and you can drive a truck through it, you're not going to be as concerned about whether it's going to get, whether it's going to be touch and go. But if it's, as you say, under the four metres and you're starting to count every centimetre to get three metres, then you're in. I'm going to bring this up, I think, because you mentioned the term six metres. You've got to just remember that not all, some councils will have it in their town planning scheme that they want a larger access way. And okay. I'm pretty sure that yeah, Belmont has that. So just make sure you check that if you're doing it in Belmont, city of Belmont. But then again, it still delves into that. I mean, we're still sort of highlighting the fact that every subdivision, you need to review it um, independently and start a brand new investigation on that particular block because every subdivision is going to be different. And we're just talking generalities today, you know, some of the things to dive deeper on. But, yeah, don't think that it's the Bible to ensuring that your subdivision is possible. The council is uh, and the things can get a lot different when you get all the details, can't they? Exactly. So, Jay, I know we're on an absolute roll, but I think we're going to have to break this episode into two parts. Next time I'm going to have you back to discuss more of the costings and feasibility, ultimately how to know how much to pay for a property, kind of profit margins to target, and also how that feeds into strategy and the timing for when you may develop a property, as well as how to uncover some hidden potentials. That's going to be exciting. So I'll see you on the next one. Mm -hmm.